And we're back. Thanks for staying with me to find out how this show ends. Spoiler alert, everyone dies. Yikes. But when we left off in part three, we had just finished our interview with artists Jason Alden, Lauren Watros, and Paul Bowen from the Drawing Studio in Brattleboro, Vermont, and were dissecting some of their observations about the art on Relief Wilcox Town's gravestone. Jason, Lauren, and Paul made some really interesting connections between the emotional nature of Relief's motif design and how its layout and execution reminded them of much of the folk art that existed at the turn of the 19th century. Are there any connections or relationships between this art, its emotion, the artist who created it, and the deceased for whom it was created? Hmm. I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 6, Awe, Part 4. In previous episodes, we've discussed the meanings and evolution of some of the symbology seen in those early motif designs. Literal imagery of death transitioning to softer, more hopeful forms. The skulls into winged skulls, then into winged angels, and finally into soul effigies by the turn of the 19th century. These later angel and effigy styles were highly symbolic and very passionate, reflecting the backlash of the populace against their Puritan heritage and its distrust of ceremony and ostentation, and the legacy of the Jeffersonian Age of Reason. People wanted to feel again. They wanted to express love, happiness, sadness, and so many sought lives of community service and accountability to their fellow human beings, both here on Earth and in the afterlife. This new social contract coincides with a proliferation of that sentimental gravestone motif imagery artists Jason, Lauren, and Paul at the drawing studio picked up on. We see hearts, meaning love for the deceased and love of God. Crowns for the glory after death. A rising sun as renewed life and resurrection, or a setting sun, the end of a long life. Effigies representing a soul living on. An effigy with wings, a soul in flight. Trees referred to the tree of life and interconnectedness. A tree that was cut or broken spoke to mortality or a life cut short. And the weeping willow, by its very name and form, was the epitome of mourning. The cosmological elements of the motif on Relief's gravestone, the crescent moon with the sole effigy in profile, the spray of ten stars across the top of the tympanum, while not terribly common in New England, is not unheard of either. Alan Ludwig, in his 1966 book, Graven Images, shows a number of examples of gravestone motif designs 
from around southern New England that showcase the diversity of this subcategory, involving some permutation of the Earth, Sun, Moon, or stars. Ludwig attributes these design elements to the metaphysical side of Christianity. Though the Reformation and its numerous Protestant sects were strictly anti-Catholic in their indulgent ceremonies and foolish traditions, there was still a vibrant streak of mystical belief that was fostered in early New England Protestants, a holdover from an earlier, rather medieval way of looking at themselves in relation to the universe. People were connected to one another, part of a chain or tree of life. And when someone died, their soul ascended into the heavens to live on. This belief is articulated with the use of cosmological and celestial imagery on gravestone motifs. Winged soul effigies, sun and moon soul effigies, stars, the moon, rising and setting suns, equating the heavens to heaven itself, where the deceased were now believed to live on. This was not mere allegory, but a literal belief. And so it follows that if the deceased was in heaven, they were no longer with their loved ones on earth. There was a break in the chain, the severing of a limb on the tree of life, a bit of that connection lost. Those that were left behind were just sad. And this intense and expressive symbology makes that sentiment immediately accessible, even today. One look at Relief's gravestone, with its broken willow, her soul moon effigy looking down from the heavens, and that mass of empty space. And, as Lauren from the drawing studio said, that is some emotion there. Emotional art needs no explanation. Depth of feeling is a universal language. At the turn of the 19th century, the emergence of this new, culturally acceptable expression of mourning and sentimentality was not just confined to the graveyard. People began to express their beliefs about grief and sadness by wearing their hearts on their sleeves, or, more specifically, their fingers, necks, and bosoms, with the practice of wearing mourning jewelry. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G jewelry. This was part of a long-standing tradition of carrying a totem of remembrance of a deceased loved one, but it's during this same post-revolution period that we're talking about when it became more popular and increasingly more elaborate. Mourning jewelry? What's that? Deferring to an expert, I asked my friend. My name is Nicole Mogavero. I usually go by Jewelry Nerd on Instagram and Facebook. I am a graduate gemologist from the Gemological Institute of America, and I am a professional jewelry appraiser and jewelry historian. To learn me a thing or two about this fascinating subset of historical jewelry. What constitutes mourning jewelry? What was its purpose? Its influences? Are there any connections between mourning jewelry designs and what we see occurring 
on gravestone motifs. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So jewelry doesn't happen in a vacuum and gravestone imagery doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is all the zeitgeist of the time. So whatever's going on culturally and artistically is going to overlap in different mediums. In fact, you can walk around cemeteries and you can look at the dates on the tombstones and you can almost draw an exact corollary line between the tombstone and this, the time that the mourning jewelry was made the exact same symbolism. Mourning jewelry came in many different forms and was often converted to keep up with fashions of the time. But perhaps the most intriguing part of their designs were their inscriptions about the deceased, allowing us today to know for whom they were made and who wore them. Pendants and rings are the two most popular things that I see in the Georgian period. Everything seemed to have been converted into or made into a brooch originally in the 19th century. Those Victorians were just all about brooches. Lots and lots of lace pins. And one of the things that customers constantly say is, oh, I love estate pieces. I love antique pieces. I wish I knew something about the person that had this. Well, with mourning jewelry, their name is right on it and so is their death date. So you can track who actually owned these pieces. So there's a, a personal connection. This is about eternal love. This is about loving somebody so much that even death wouldn't keep you from thinking about that person. You wanna have something of them to carry with you throughout the rest of your life, whether they're here or not. And that just speaks to such an intense, devotional aspect of love. But it's the symbolism on this jewelry of this time period that Nicole wants us to pay attention to, taking careful note of the subtle differences between pieces with mourning symbology versus pieces that were meant to be sentimental. This is a trend that holds true for gravestone motif design as well, uh, minus the hair. You'll see what I mean. The majority of it is the symbolism. So it's usually split into two groups. There's sentimental jewelry and there's mourning jewelry. Very often they look the same. So the only thing that's going to separate one from another is the symbolism. They actually are separate things, but there's definitely some crossover. So things like urns, and skeletons obviously denote death, whereas things like lambs or birds are usually sentimental pieces. Lambs usually are children, and you, when you walk through cemeteries, children's tombstones are usually denoted with a lamb on it. And so it's applicable with jewelry of the same time period also. The same thing with birds. The majority of the bird symbolism that you see is geared towards love. Just think of lovebirds or doves being released at a wedding. So the symbolism is going to make something mourning versus sentimental. In the late 1800s, people were still just kind of like how we take a lock of our child's first hair, our first haircut, 
and we keep that in a locket today. They were doing the same thing in the late 1700s. It was just being encased in a ring rather than in a locket like we do now. It was also customary if two lady friends would just give each other locks of their hair. And that just meant, I'm thinking about you. I want you to continue to think about me. So here's a lock of my hair. But it had a, a very sentimental and very personal um, meaning to it. And finally, Nicole examines the crossover of specific symbolism found on mourning jewelry and gravestone motif design at the turn of the 19th century. So the death's head, the, it's kind of like a skull with wings. Tempest Fugit, time flies, and that's an hourglass with wings. Sometimes it's just an hourglass. Those are going to show up in the early morning phases. So the early part of the 1700s, so like 1730s, you know, right around the Rococo period. And you're going to see skulls and complete skeletons. There are these really beautiful black bands that have black enamel and there's a full skeleton and then sometimes there are the grave diggers tools on it. There are some that have coffin shaped crystals that under the crystal lies a skeleton or a skull. So right around the turn of the 19th century was still 1800 to about 1830 approximately. And that's still the very end of the Georgian period that, you know, 1810 to 1820 is the Regency period. So it's very neoclassical. It's women who were sort of dressed with um, that high-waisted dress and all dressed in white because, strangely, white was the traditional color for mourning. Predominantly women. Sometimes you see men. It's rare to see mourning jewelry that has men on it. So those are kinds of the, the traditional things that you see, but it's usually a woman standing or kneeling or sitting by a plinth that holds an urn on the top of it with a weeping willow in the background. There's usually also cypress trees because cypress trees are generally planted in cemeteries. So their image has been a, a consistent cemetery image going all the way back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Of course, mourning jewelry and gravestone design were just some of the ways this new, outward, emotional, more personal culture of grief was embraced by the public. Soon, urns, willows, mourning figures, and stars started cropping up in other visible handiworks like embroidery projects, printed fabrics, and wallpaper designs. Death was big business. And one has to wonder, with all of these personal expressions of grief going around, how does any of it tie to the grief over a specific person? To determine this, we need data. I'm going to walk you through my research process of trying to see if there's any discernible link between the motif designs on gravestones and the deceased, so that we may identify any link between the broken willow, moon, soul effigy, the ten stars, and the mass of empty space in relief Wilcox Town's gravestone to her life and death. Now, 
having to listen to someone describe their research methodology is generally more boring than watching paint dry. And at least with the paint, you can close all the windows and hope for a nice fume-induced buzz before passing out from the boredom. But bear with me, it'll be worth your while. I even describe a spreadsheet. Do you really want to miss that? So, in trying to make these gravestone motif connections to the deceased, we need to collect information about the decedent, on the carver, on the community in which they both lived, and even the communities from which they came originally, in order to understand all the elements that could have influenced the design of the gravestone. And it is possible to make those connections. Just remember the Rebecca Park stone, with the 13 little faces that correlated to her 13 lost infants. Since the personal family angle of the deceased can be so lucrative, I dove into researching Relief and her family. I had a hard time finding anything about her side of the family, other than a record from one of her daughter's death certificates that listed Relief's maiden name as Clues. All of the information I did get about her was through her first husband, William Wilcox Jr.'s family. William Jr. and Relief, William's parents, his nine siblings, and a number of Wilcox in-laws and their extended families all came to Halifax, Vermont from central Rhode Island sometime in the 1770s. The Wilcox clan all settled in the northeast corner of town, setting up their farms close to one another on a contiguous run of land that would later come to include the cemetery where Relief and a number of other Wilcox relatives would be buried known as the Weeks Family Cemetery. Weeks was the married name of William Wilcox's sister, Elsie. Between 1790 and 1804, Relief and William would have at least eight children. The Wilcoxes were likely Baptists, as records indicate that some in the family were founding members of the original Baptist church in Halifax. The year 1805 would be a difficult one for the Wilcoxes. Between July and December, six family members would die, including Relief's husband, William, leaving her with eight children aged 15 down to one year. With so many children to look after, Relief soon remarried to Captain David Town in 1806. It's unclear where they lived during their seven-year marriage, though likely it was relatively close to Halifax, as Relief was buried in the Weeks Cemetery there. In all likelihood, she was interred next to her first husband, William Wilcox, though there's no stone marking William's grave today. There are gravestones for two other family members who died during the same 1805 wave of deaths that took William. It would make sense that if Relief is there, and the in-laws are there, then William is in that cemetery too. Knowing all of this, what connections could I make between the imagery on Relief's gravestone 
and her life. Was there some religious connotation? Laurel Gable of the Association for Gravestone Studies said there are known examples of star-in-the-sky motifs that refer to a specific biblical passage from the book of Revelations, chapter 1, verse 20. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But of course, those designs had seven stars, not ten. And this passage didn't appear to hold any particular significance to the Baptists at the time. So why would it be singled out to represent something on Relief's gravestone? So could the stars be definitively related to another part of her life, like her children, as in the case with Rebecca Park? Relief had eight known children, and none of them predeceased her. Okay, so were there any other important deaths that took place before she died in 1813? Yes. There were those six deaths in the family in 1805, but then who were the other four stars supposed to be? I did find other in-laws and nephews who died before 1805, but I really had to stretch the bounds of grieving to make it all total 10. But even that was tenuous, as this was all based on the records that happened to be preserved. And without knowing anything about Relief's side of the family, it's impossible to guess who among the list of dead could be represented by the stars. So, I struck out trying to make the connection to Relief directly. But what about other gravestones? Gravestone carvers, like all artists, have recognizable traits of their techniques and subject matter that help identify their work. I went to find any other gravestone in the area that looked like Relief's, or at least had some similarities in style, subject, lettering, and overall shape of the stone. I started with the stones of her family members in the Week Cemetery, as it seemed logical that the family would use the same carver for all its gravestone needs. There were four Wilcox family members whose stones were still standing there, and I compared them to Relief's. Two nephews, who died in 1795, and a brother-in-law and nephew, who died in 1805. The four family gravestones had a very distinctive draped urn motif, all with figures and fonts similar enough to one another that I think they were done by the same carver, but not the same carver as Relief's gravestone. Drat! But of course, these are the stones of the Wilcox Weeks side of her family. At the time of her death, Relief had remarried to David Town, and he was, in all likelihood, responsible for picking out and paying for her gravestone. David's first wife, Elizabeth Breed Town, died in 1800, relatively close in time to Relief, so I tracked down her gravestone to see if there were any similarities. Alas, Relief's gravestone was carved out of slate, while Elizabeth's was done in marble. As for the motif design, they were completely different. Relief's was this delicate, expressive tapestry of symbols, while Elizabeth's 
is very Spartan. No motif design on the tympanum at all, and not even a decorative border around the tablet. Finally, I compared Relief's gravestone to any of her known immediate family members. I found the gravestones for her second husband, David, and for some of her children, and no soap there either, I'm afraid. But you know, I'm not one to give up so easily. There had to be somebody out there who could tell me more about who carved this gravestone and what it might have to do with Relief Wilcox Town. There are professional and avocational groups out there who, like me, think popping around a cemetery constitutes a good time. I showed this stone to the members of the New Hampshire Old Gravestone Association, the Vermont Old Cemetery Association, and the Association for Gravestone Studies, based in Greenfield, Massachusetts. I also showed it to people at the Rhode Island Historical Cemeteries Commission, the Grave Girls, and the Rhode Island Genealogical Society. These groups spend their free time researching, taking photos, doing inventories, and even repair work on broken gravestones all throughout New England. If there was another stone like this out there, they'd be the ones who had seen it. The results? The experts in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts didn't think it looked like anything they were familiar with in their states, and thought it very possibly originated closer to Rhode Island, where Relief's family had lived before moving to Vermont. The experts in Rhode Island didn't think it looked like anything they were familiar with in their states and thought it very possibly originated closer to Vermont. Well, shit. So, the possibility has to be entertained that this unique gravestone design has nothing to do with Relief Wilcox Town at all. And the fact that my research turned up no concrete connections between the gravestone design and any facet of Relief's life seems to support this. Furthermore, a finding like this isn't an isolated incident. There have been studies and articles identifying this disconnect between the motif designs and the deceased as an actual cultural trend. Gravestone motif designs at the turn of the 19th century may have been more expressive and sentimental, but those designs were more of a reflection of community values rather than that of a specific individual. I think I can break this down for you by looking at some more of my research. When I couldn't find any link between the images on her gravestone and relief, I simplified my search and expanded it to include any cosmological and celestial imagery on gravestones in cemeteries up and down the upper Middle Connecticut River Valley. I found almost 40 examples of sun-soul effigies, setting suns, rising suns, moons, sprays of stars, in various layouts and forms. I compiled the information from these stones into a spreadsheet. It's nothing any hero wouldn't do. 
and I tried to see if there was a through line among these stones and the people they represented. I looked at the year they died, the age at death, gender, cemetery where they were buried, town where their family originated, and stone carver and religious affiliation, if that was available. And FYI, the information I collated on my spreadsheet was just what happened to be in my archives from years of wandering around local cemeteries. I know I didn't see every gravestone in every cemetery I went to, and not every gravestone is legible or complete enough to be seen. My sample size of 38 gravestones came from 15 cemeteries, covering a roughly 50 by 15 mile stretch of towns straddling the Connecticut River, with work represented by at least five carvers. The only consistencies across my sample I could find were that these cosmologically themed carvings occurred within a 20-year period, between 1792 and 1813, and that the five carvers I could identify, Stephen Risley Jr. of Brattleboro, Vermont, John Locke of Brattleboro, Vermont, and Westmoreland, New Hampshire, the Wright School of Carvers out of Rockingham, Vermont, and Jonas and James Stewart of Claremont, New Hampshire, had overlapping commercial territories. So, of our known quantities, let's first explore the 1790s to the 1810s time period. Remember what was happening in New England? Society was changing. They were experiencing waves of evangelical revivals and conversions, which fostered a new culture where it was socially acceptable to express big, personal emotions publicly. And it's always at the beginning of any new cultural movement when it's the most diverse and dynamic. When something's new, nobody knows the rules yet. Creativity and innovation are boundless. So it makes sense that during this initial phase of this cultural shift that we see these novel ideas play themselves out in such interesting ways at the local level. Amongst those five carvers I could identify in my sample, the 1790s to 1810s appeared to be an era of experimentation for them. Not only were they including cosmological and celestial themes in their work, but it seems that out of all the gravestones they carved during this period, no two were alike. Their individual carving styles remained quite distinct, but everything from the elements that were included, how they were laid out, to the size and shape of the gravestone seemed to change with every creation. And records indicate that those choices were usually made by the carvers, not the family buying the stone. This holds true for not just the imagery on a gravestone, but for the inscription as well. Earlier in the show, I gave examples of epitaphs that had inscriptions that referenced a specific person, but those are the exceptions. The epitaphs on most gravestones were pretty generic. Recycled on stone after stone, heedless of man, woman, or child. And there were books full of these tropes that the carvers could pull from. In fact, the lines at the bottom of Relief's gravestone, My God, His Chosen People Saves, 
amongst the dead, amidst the graves, while a selection from the Book of Psalms was also included in a book called Arrangement of Psalms and Hymns and Spiritual Songs of the Reverend Isaac Watts, originally printed in 1786. It was a book that organized biblical passages based on their themes, so that a preacher could quickly scan the index to find a pertinent line to go along with a sermon they had in mind. Crib notes, if you will. Carvers would have used these books for the same purpose. The lines from Relief's gravestone were listed in that book under the heading Sickness-slash-Recovery and Times and Seasons. Boom! There you go. Customers would provide the name, age, and date of death, but the carver often supplied the rest. And then, as now, people wanted what their neighbors had, and were less concerned about how they kept up with the Joneses, only that they did. And while cosmological imagery was clearly not unheard of, it didn't seem to have been terribly common either. I found examples of it in 15 cemeteries in the region, but I've probably been to well over a hundred odd cemeteries over the years. And while these five carvers included these themes in their work, it represents only a fraction of what they produced. And other carvers never utilized those themes at all. So this blossoming of cosmological and celestial imagery on gravestone was fueled by artist imagination, markets, and these new, heretofore, unfettered evangelical themes of resurrection of the soul. It was part of a larger, exciting creative movement, driven by the carvers, but it was not long-lived. As these evangelical movements matured, their message stabilized and unified. They still very much celebrated mourning, but culture began to value conformity when it came to its grief, and phased out these wildly inventive designs for the willow in urn almost exclusively by 1820. Having said all that, we're still in a conundrum about Relief's gravestone. I can't say who carved it, where it came from, and that it means anything about her. What I can say is that her gravestone was of its time, a brief, emotionally expressive era of religious revivalism that allowed people to reconnect to the mystical side of their faith. The broken, weeping willow, signifying mourning and a life cut short. The soul moon effigy, representing a resurrected soul living in the actual heavens, surrounded by stars and the empty space at the center of the tympanum, reflecting the literal emptiness on Earth now that the deceased had ascended. The art on Relief Wilcox Town's gravestone relays sadness and mourning, but it also relays comfort. It reminds the living that although their loved one may be gone from earth, their soul carries on in heaven, watching over them, waiting. 
And while this theme may or may not have connected to relief personally, it's still personal. And the emotion of that art still resonates with us today. And as it turns out... Oh, wow. Oh, oh my god. Wow. You didn't really need me to tell you that. A special thanks to Morning Jewelry Specialist, Nicole Mogavero. And if you want to learn more about this truly fascinating world of historic jewelry, visit Nicole's Instagram and Facebook page. She's listed under Jewelry Nerd. To all the individuals and groups who answered my questions and dug around in their archives. Laurel Gable of the Association for Gravestone Studies. The Grave Girls. James Blackowitz, Loyola University, Chicago, and Michael Lafieri and John Sterling of the Rhode Island Historic Cemeteries Commission. Also, members of the New Hampshire Old Gravestone Association, the Vermont Old Cemetery Association, the Association for Gravestone Studies, and the Rhode Island Genealogical Society. For more information about this show, visit our website, at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Radio Public.